So Mark 8 and verse 1 says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat and his disciples went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, Is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Look again at those verses later and we pray that God would add his blessing to his word. have my welcome again to you all. My name's Dave, as I think Luke's already mentioned. Uh, I'm one of the, the deacons here. Now, if I can ask my tech support guru over there. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We'll see if the technology works for us. So, if you have a Bible, and if you don't, then please go and grab one. Um, and also, I should say, there are some question sheets. We normally reserve those for our teenagers who are in the service. Um, there's not many of those today, but if you want to feel like a teenager... <laughs> then please feel free to grab a question sheet to help guide you through the passage. So, excellent. So yeah, we're back in, in Mark 8 this morning. We've been running a series throughout this gospel, and we're continuing this morning with this passage. So within this, oh, within this passage, there's three quite distinct parts as you read through it from verses 1 to 21. There's the account of the feeding of the 4,000, 
Then there's the account of the exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus. And then there's this account of Jesus questioning his disciples' understanding as they essentially say, have we got enough bread? And when I first looked at this passage, I was trying to find a common thread that runs through all three of these accounts, and the first thing that came to my mind was bread. And that left me a bit stumped, because I'm not sure the point of verses 1 to 21 is make sure you have enough bread. And so I think, actually, to make sense of this passage, if we read from verses 1 to 21, to make sense of it all, we actually have to start at the end to make sense of the beginning and of the middle. You see, at the end, Jesus questions his disciples because of this this bizarre discussion, have we got enough bread with us? And I think what that shows is that they've missed the point of all the actions, of all the things that they've seen that Jesus has done in verses 1 to 13. And what is that point? What is the point of this passage? Well, it's about what distracts us from our focus on the Lord himself. See, I think this passage in its entirety challenges us to examine ourselves and see if our Christian walk is a focused path towards the Lord Jesus Christ or if essentially we're just a bit like this guy. For the benefit of the recording, I should probably explain what we've got here is a photographer with probably one of the largest telescopic lenses I've ever seen. He's set up. He's got his coat on, he's outside, he's clearly there with serious intent to get a really good picture of a penguin. And the problem is, whilst he's intently staring down the lens, there's a penguin standing right behind him. To my mind, this guy, he's so distracted by his desire to get a really good shot of the penguin and make sure that his his camera's right, make sure his position's right, make sure the lighting is right. He's so distracted by that, he's missing the point of why he's there. Now, this is one of my biggest frustrations when I go on holiday. You go to the Colosseum, the Eiffel Tower, you go to see the the beautiful, I've seen the, uh, the Blue Mountains in Australia. And when I see tourists like this, playing with the settings on their camera or on their phones, and you know, it's selfies, selfie sticks. If anyone's got a selfie stick, I'm sorry, no. People are so distracted, aren't they, by getting the right picture, they're not actually looking at the view. They're missing the point of this totally incredible, amazing thing. Just like this guy here on the screen, the incredible thing they've come to see. And I think that's the danger the disciples were in here. And the danger that we can be in sometimes, that we're in danger of losing focus on the most amazing thing in existence. We can lose focus on Christ himself if we allow ourselves to. And what are the things that can help us or make us lose focus? Well, as I say, we're going to go back to the end of the passage. And so if we look at verses 17 to 21, we see the Lord Jesus He's asking his disciples if they have missed the point. Verse 17, I think, is quite a a blunt verse. Verse 17 says, Jesus is stopping them in their tracks before they go any further with this discussion around, have we got enough bread with us? Because that discussion 
I think, was a distraction in itself. And whilst you can kind of sense, I think, as you read through those verses from 17 onwards, that Jesus isn't really happy with the discussion they've been having. He is questioning them, and his questions are fairly blunt. Whilst he's not happy, clearly this for him is a teachable moment. And so he asks, he asks a series of questions. We'll look at verse 17 and 18 here. Jesus asks, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Do you still not see, Jesus asks. And what he means by this is, don't you understand from everything you've already seen me do? Jesus is not here asking, have you grasped a really uh, intangible, complex concept? He's reminding them that they've already seen the evidence with their very eyes. Jesus has already done some astounding things we've seen as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And you would hope, you would hope that the miracles they've seen, they would trigger something in these guys' minds. It would help them to understand that really, it doesn't matter if you've only got one loaf of bread with you. That's probably not what Jesus is warning you about here. He's concerned about a lot more than that. Jesus goes on, he also asks if they have ears but fail to hear. You see, these guys, again, they had the privilege of hearing Jesus' teaching firsthand. They'd been with him as he'd been traveling. We we have to assume that Jesus would have been teaching them as they traveled. So it's not just the accounts we see in the Gospels. Jesus will have been teaching them on the boat journeys, on the walks, as they're sat around a campfire, it's probably a bit of a, you know, an idealistic scene, but Jesus will have been teaching these guys. They will have heard his message. And they will have heard the declarations of the people that Jesus had healed. And they will have heard the terrified demons declaring that Jesus is Lord as he cast them out of people. And we know from a few verses earlier, they would have heard Jesus pray. Pray for the loaves of bread that fed 4,000 people. And they would have heard and they would have seen people being filled with those seven loaves. And yet after hearing all of that, they seem to think that Jesus is worried about the fact they only have one loaf of bread on the boat. And so Jesus at this point, he needs to correct them. He needs to nip it in the bud because they are missing the point. And perhaps it's a point that needs to be addressed in us. Are we missing the point? Because we have to assume this is in the Bible because it's an everlasting problem. If it was just for the disciples, maybe it wouldn't be here. This is something that we need to take a lesson from today. Before we do that, I think it's important to note that Jesus wasn't accusing the disciples of being foolish or stupid. There was no accusation here. Because it can sound, as I say, verses 17 and 18, they can sound a bit, don't you get it, don't you get it, don't you get it. But he's not questioning their intelligence. Because, you see, if Jesus had wanted smart, intelligent, academically minded people, well, he probably would have started with a group of Pharisees, his disciples, wouldn't he? 
not just some fishermen and a, and a bloke who used to be a tax collector. No offense to tax collectors, I'm sure they're quite smart. But he wouldn't have started with this random collection of men. And so he's not accusing them of being foolish or, or unacademically minded. But he was being firm with them. So why was he being firm? Well, if you see near the end of our passage, it's to question their hearts. The tail end of verse 17 says, Are your hearts hardened? If you think about it, the most intelligent people, they can be blinded, can't they? Stephen Hawking, for example, very, very intelligent man, and with all credit to him, but he didn't believe because his heart was not open to the truth. And no amount of study or debate or philosophizing or reading can change that. And at the other end of that spectrum, a young child who has no understanding of the way the world works, a young child whose mind hasn't developed, can still, can still grasp the gospel in its entirety. So it's the heart that's the key. And so... When Jesus was asking the disciples these questions, don't you understand, haven't you, you've seen, you've heard, what he wasn't saying was, are you not getting it up here? What he was saying is, do you believe it? Do you truly grasp it in here, not the microphone, in the heart? And that's, that's what he's asking of us. Do we believe, do we accept without proof? Because that's what believing means. Not asking for proof, but actually just trusting, accepting, and living by something. And having that said, though, proof is not needed for belief. Jesus had shown these guys a lot of proof, a lot of evidence. If we look back through verses 19 to 20, Jesus says, When I broke five loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Jesus points out the impossibility of what he's already done. Breaking five loaves to feed maybe somewhere between 30 and 40 people, that that is the art of fantastic mass catering. Breaking five loaves to feed 5,000 people That's just not humanly possible. Because even if you could cut the bread so thinly that everyone got one piece, I don't think a single one of those 5,000 people would be satisfied with that tiny sliver of bread. And not just they were all satisfied, there was 12 baskets of leftovers after those 5,000 were fed. And it's interesting that it wasn't just a a fluke or poetic license about that account, was it? Because Jesus does it again at the start of this passage. 4,000 people with seven loaves. Yeah, less people, more loaves. But ultimately, this is still humanly impossible. It took divine power to do that. And as we heard a couple of weeks ago, Dav pointed out, our pastor Dav, pointed out there's only one person that we've ever seen provide bread for people in the middle of nowhere when there were so many of them. And that was the Israelite refugees that had come out of Egypt. The manna that appeared on the ground every morning. That was provisioned for them out of nothing. 
So something was distracting the disciples here. And it's easy, isn't it, to look at this and think, how could you see all of that? How could you spend all of that time with Jesus and not get where he was coming from? I sometimes, I read these passages and I think, how did they not get it? How did they not understand? But then I'm reminded that there's a plank in my own eye if I think that. Because I've already seen their doubt. And I've got that much more of the Bible to read. And I've got the benefit of a lot more hindsight. And I've seen how the church has expanded. And I've seen lives changed. And I've seen God's undeserved faithfulness and goodness to me. And yet, if I'm honest, I lose sight. I get distracted sometimes. I lose sight when I'm praying of who I'm praying to. And I do sometimes doubt. And before anyone gets too twitchy about me saying I doubt when I'm the guy standing up here, it doesn't mean I doubt that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean I doubt what he did on the cross and that he rose again three days later. But sometimes my thinking just doesn't live up to that, does it? Sometimes when I can't see a way out of a situation or I'm not sure what to do, I turn to God and I pray as if he doesn't know what's going on. As if he's not really that interested. And if, if he is interested, then you know, maybe he only, he'll only do the minimum to help me out. And actually, I'm willing to venture that everyone in this room has done the same thing. I'm willing to venture we've all done that before. I don't think we'd have to look very far for examples of when we've prayed like that. But that's the work of the evil one. He wants us to doubt God. He wants us to doubt that God is powerful enough or caring enough to care about us. And that, that is not the Lord Jesus we see expressed in the Bible. That's not the God who, when we were still sinners, gave his son to die in our place so that those that perish or those that believe in him shall not perish. That's not the God we see. So if we allow ourselves to get distracted by this type of thinking, like the disciples did, then we're just not getting it. But do you want the good news? Yes, we do, Dave. Just because we've missed the point doesn't mean we've missed the boat. You see, all bar one of those disciples, if we assume it was the original 12, they went on to be men of astounding faith. People who died for the Lord. One of them, who made a lot more mistakes, as we see, went on to be the rock on which the entire church was built. Or Jesus called him the rock on which I will build my church. So if we think, well, maybe I sometimes miss the point. This isn't a time to beat ourselves up. It's a time to recognize it, to see what distracts us. And then once you recognize it, you can keep yourselves from being distracted. And so with that in mind, I'm going to look at the two key things in this passage that are key things that can distract us. The first of which are needs and our wants. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to need something. I'm not saying it's wrong to want something. We all have physical needs. I've just taken a swig of that because I need it. We all need food. We all need water. We all need shelter. 
But what we see in this passage is when, when we focus on the Lord, we don't allow ourselves to get distracted by the constant chase after those things that satisfy our wants and needs. And if we focus on the Lord, we see then that the Lord provides. I've said before, I said a moment ago, how often are our prayers to the maker and master of the heavens and the earth, the one who gave his son? How often are our prayers about a meeting at work? Or about getting approval for a mortgage? Maybe they're not, but maybe you find yourselves praying a lot for health issues or relationship issues, anything like that. And you know what? That's a good thing. Philippians 4, 6 tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And so we should bring our prayers to God. There's no denying that. But the issue is when our prayers are just full of requests. They're a shopping list, and they're not the praise that is due to the one who is hearing them. And if we come back to Philippians... We see that verse says, don't be anxious about anything. Because we shouldn't worry if God will provide for what we need. That in itself is the distraction. And it's not worth worrying about. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you something from these verses about the God that you are praying to. Let's go back to verse 1. Verse 1 of our passage shows that the Lord Jesus, he recognizes the needs of these 4,000 people. He sees they're about to go hungry after these three days. There's no one saying, uh, <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus, these people are, are really hungry. They've been here three days. That doesn't happen. There's no one saying, come on, it's nearly tea time. We need to get these people out of here. It's the Lord Jesus himself that recognizes their need. And what does he do? He, he calls the disciples to himself to deal with the problem. Verse 2 goes on to show us, and this is a fantastic phrase, verse 2 goes on to show us he has compassion. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. The Lord Jesus himself sees the needs of these people and he has compassion on them. He doesn't owe these people anything, does he? He's He's been giving out his teaching, his healing, and he has no obligation to feed these people. That wasn't in the invite. Luke talked about you know, people flocking for free food, but Jesus never promised that. And yet he still he sees their need and he has compassion on them. And verse 3 shows us actually he grasps the depth of their need as well. Because he knows that some of them have come a long, long way. And he knows they physically don't have the calories they need to walk home without collapsing. Verse 4 is another exchange with the disciples saying, where are we going to get the bread from out here? You'd have thought they'd have learned. But Jesus plows on. And he gets enough food for, as I say, maybe 30, 40 people. He sits the crowd down and he gives thanks. He gives thanks when he doesn't have enough food to give these people. And so at this point, Jesus is either crazy or he knows exactly what he's doing. And I'd suggest that verse 8 shows us he knew what he was doing. Verse 8 says, The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. 4,000 people, 
seven loaves, they all ate and they were all satisfied. And then there's seven baskets full of leftovers. That had to be divine provision. And that's why, but sorry, but it's why it was provided that's more important, I think. You see, the Lord, as I say, saw the crowd's need. He had compassion. He understood the depth of their need. And he knew he had something to do, or he had to do something about it. And it's the same for everyone in this room. Jesus gets our needs because he's felt them for himself. Matthew 4.2 talks about the fact that Jesus was hungry after fasting for 40 days. Jesus felt the pain of losing a loved one, didn't he? He wept for Lazarus when he got to Lazarus' tomb. And he's known the anguish of facing a situation he didn't want to face. Fast forward four days to Gethsemane. Four days minus 2,000 odd years. Matthew 26, 39 tells us he prayed face down for the anguish and the scorn of the cross to be taken away. Jesus gets our needs and he is compassionate to provide. And of course there's no greater example of this than this Friday, where we remember the cross itself. Jesus saw the depth of our need to be saved from an eternity without God. And he put us right with God by dying on the cross. He came to this earth to die in my place, to die in your place, so that we could be clean, we could be holy, we could be righteous before God and know him as our master and our father in heaven. So this example shows us that the Lord understands our needs. He has compassion and he has power to do something about them. And with that said then, we shouldn't be distracted by what we need in our walk with Jesus. We should be focusing on him and trusting that he knows and provides for our needs. And that's the challenge for us. One of the first challenges this morning, do we need to examine our prayer lives? and our heart towards God, and to ask ourselves how much we seek God to seek him, and how much do we seek God to get what we want. As I've said, we should bring our request to God, but that shouldn't be the extent of our relationship with him. That's a transactional relationship. You have that same relationship with those self-service tills in Tesco, don't you? You interact with them to get what you want. No. The extent of our relationship with God should be to focus on just how incredible, just how amazing, just how beautiful he is to us. Because we have something, as the photographer shows, we have something much more incredible to focus on than the distraction. Now what's the second of the distractions from our passage this morning? Technology. False teaching. So the second distraction is uh, the teachings of of other people or peoples. And specifically, we look at this warning in verse 15. Verse 15, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The warning is about not being uh, distracted by the teaching of the Pharisees or by what the Pharisees were saying. See, the Pharisees, as we know, were quite a vocal and influential bunch of people. And they weren't really willing to listen to Jesus, were they? They stuck by their religious rituals and 
they developed their own way of being right with God. In their eyes, they were right with God by what they did. And that was essentially their pride. And they didn't want to hear a message of the fact they could still be sinners. They didn't want to hear a message of hope through a gracious saviour. And that's why we see, I think, in verse 12, that Jesus sighs deeply. He sighs because yet, here's another encounter with the Pharisees. Whereas verse 11 tells us, they were just there to test him. They weren't testing, you know, show us your claims are actually true. They were trying to find a little bit of a chink in his armour to say, now we've got you. You're not who you say we are, or you are. And now we don't have to trust in what you're saying. They wanted to disprove him so they could carry on in their own efforts. And clearly the Lord Jesus had become tired of playing this game. Tired of constant testing. And so he leaves. And after they left the Pharisees in Dalmanutha, he warns the disciples, beware of these Pharisees. And he's warning them to be aware or be wary of the teaching of the Pharisees because the Pharisees could be a pretty convincing bunch. Their in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures meant they could tie people in knots. They knew what they were talking about. And so they could be quite convincing to prove things from the Old Testament. And they could be quite forceful, if we're honest. Just read the book of Acts. They were not a uh, passive-aggressive bunch, I would say. They were a fairly aggressive-aggressive bunch. But their teaching is incredibly was and is incredibly dangerous because it's totally contrary to the message of salvation that Jesus brought. That message we see in Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says... Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. A message of salvation through faith. But the passage, that verse says it's impossible to please God without faith. You're not going to know, Pharisees, you're not going to know God's favour by dogmatically obeying rule after rule after rule after rule. And anyone who thinks they will, they jeopardize their salvation in this. So beware the distraction of the Pharisees, of the religious zealots, of those that think that the rules and the regulations can make you holy. But interestingly, you know, the Pharisees get a bit of a bashing, and perhaps rightly so. But Jesus also says, beware the Pharisees and Herod. Well, what was Herod teaching? Well, Herod wasn't really teaching anything. It's more about what Herod was allowing. You see, Herod, Herod was the, this is not the Herod of the, the birth of Jesus' story. This is his, his son. But he was a puppet king, they called him. He was a king appointed over the Jews by the Romans to essentially appease the Jews. And he wasn't a king in the mould of David. He was a king who just ignored all of the moral laws and statutes that God had given. And he went with the Roman way. A worldly way. And so Jesus was warning here to say, it's not necessarily about Herod himself. It's about what he allows. It's about the, the wisdom of what he allows 
in the world around us. You see, the wisdom of the world can be just as influential as the, uh, the holy and sound teaching of the Pharisees or the teaching they were trying to put on people. You see, the world has a way of trying to, uh, to justify ignoring God's law because it doesn't fit with them. How many times have you been in a conversation where someone says to you things like, well, I've never killed anyone, I've never robbed a bank, I pay my taxes on time, and if I find a spider in the bath, I don't kill it, I get a cup, put it in there and put it out the window. So, because of all of these things, I must therefore be a good person. And by the world standards, that's fairly convincing. But if you ask the same people, have you ever been selfish? Have you ever hated? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever yearned after something that wasn't yours? And if they're honest, they won't be able to deny it. And this type of thinking that the legal law and the moral law are the same is very much permeated into our society. And when it does, it impacts believers and it impacts our churches. And it leads to the elephant in the room, which one book calls Respectable Sins. The sins of jealousy, the sins of the tongue, of anger, of impatience. And so the teaching of the world, or or Herod in this example, is in this case just as dangerous as the Pharisees' teaching because it can distract from faith-filled godliness. So in this warning, there's two distractions. There's the overzealous religiousism, and I know religiousism isn't a word, of the Pharisees, and then there's the unholy self-centeredness, and that probably is a word, of Herod. And both of these, they can be a real distraction from the joy and the beauty of Christ. But what's interesting is that Jesus' warning here contains a particular word. It contains the word zume. And unless anyone in this room can speak ancient Greek, I'm going to go with that pronunciation. So the NIV translates this word as yeast. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. But it's not really a particularly good translation. You see, we use yeast in bread these days because actually it's commercially available. In those days, it wasn't. And the translation therefore misses something. It misses the fact that this word zume really actually means fermenting and turning sour which is what leaven, probably a better translation, would have done. So leaven is more accurate, and it sheds more light on why Jesus uses this word. Because leaven works, and I only had to look this up, leaven works by breaking down, by rapidly expanding, and leaving a sour taste, sourdough bread. And it's so apt, isn't it? Because the ways and the teachings of the Pharisees and the ways and the teachings of Herod had the power to do all three of those things, to break down, to rapidly expand, and to leave a sour taste. This overzealous religiousism and the teachings of the world in 2019, they have exactly the same power to break us down, to rapidly expand, even just from a small, small portion and to leave a sour taste. It only takes a few of these small things to to break down a believer, to break down a church. So two, two or 
three-ish stark warnings. But what do we need to take from this morning's passage? What do we need to take from these warnings into the next week or year? Well, we need to heed that warning, don't we? We need to heed the warning not to get caught up in the distractions that stop us from focusing on Christ. See, our passage this morning highlights two, three, two or three key things that can distract us. They can cause us to have ears but fail to hear. They can cause us to not remember what we should be focusing on. They all cause us to miss the point and miss the magnitude, the amazement of the Lord on whom we should be focused. And it's easy, isn't it? It's really easy to be distracted by these things without even realising it. It's easy to suddenly realise that you've neglected your ministries or your quiet times because you've been focused on an illness or a relationship or even, and this is not a bad thing to do, but the work that pays your mortgage can sometimes get in the way, can't it? And it's easy to be distracted by different wisdoms and teachings because there's so much information out there. If we shut off all the media in the world, and if we turned off the internet, and I know it's not just one switch on a wall somewhere, but if we turned off the internet, and if we didn't speak to anyone else in the world, and if we just read the Bible, we'd probably find it easier, but I bet we'd still be distracted. And of course, we can't do that. We can't stop the media. We can't stop the internet. We can't never speak to another soul. There are distractions out there. These are the evil one's tools in his battle to destroy us. And he's pretty good at it, isn't he? But, great word, but, we are not alone. See, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. We have each other. And we have God's word to point us back to the one true focus we should have. And so with that in mind, I'm going to do an incredibly whistle-stop tour of some practical advice to keep us focused on our Lord, to keep us not focused on the material or the physical and not the false teachings and wisdom of those around us. A few very quick bits of advice. So, Proverbs 3, verse 5. You can read it on the screen. Essentially, it doesn't solely depend on you. Don't try and figure this out. Don't try and do this on your own. Lean not on your own understanding. And Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Just remember how much blessing you can receive by putting God's first. That sounds a bit selfish, but the verse says it there. Honour the Lord, and your barns will be filled to overflowing. Now, Please don't get me wrong, that's not a health and wealth message, as some people say. But we have to remember that by honouring God, we store up treasures in heaven that can never spoil, perish, or fade. Psalm 119, verse 11. Don't neglect God's word. If you've got scripture embedded in your hearts then I'll bet you it's a lot easier to recognise those distractions that try and creep in. John 14, verse 26. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit. We have someone trying to teach us. We have the Holy Spirit with with us. Let's listen to him. Let's actively listen to the teacher who's with us in the car, on the walk to work, when you're going to sleep. We have the teacher with us, so let's listen. 
and then Proverbs 3, verse 12. You might be thinking, where's he going with this verse? Well, actually, when we get distracted and when we go off track, we might need to face the consequences of that. But remember, if we're facing the consequences, it's because the Lord God is trying to draw us back. He's not letting you go off the rails and saying, I've given up on you. The Lord disciplines those that he actually loves. If you're being disciplined, if you're being pulled back from distraction, it might be painful, but it's because God loves you. And so these are important tips, and they are, as I say, a whistle-stop tour. Ones we need to ponder, because this is an important message. The Lord Jesus questioned his disciples, didn't he, at the end of this passage. He didn't want them to miss the point of what they'd seen and heard. He didn't want, to be that, didn't want them to be that tourist who turns up at the view and looks at their camera and not the skies and not the monument and not the scenery. He didn't want them to waste the journey. People fly hundreds of miles, don't they, to see these sights and then never stare at them. The Lord wants us not to miss the beauty of what we're here to see. And God doesn't want us to be distracted by a desire for our wants and needs. Because he can provide for them and he does. And God has no desire for us to be distracted by the teaching and the wisdom of anyone who doesn't speak the gospel truth. You see, there are plenty of distractions out there. They are hard to ignore. But when we grasp the truth of the spiritual battle around us, when we grasp that they are distractions, distractions that we face every day, I think, I think we need to think back to Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew 14, Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. And then he steps out of the boat, And he steps on to water. And at first it seems to work, doesn't it? Peter starts to do something impossible for man. But then in verse 30 of that passage, he looks at the wind. He looks at the waves being kicked up. And what happens? He becomes afraid. And he loses focus on Jesus because he's looking at what's distracting him. And he starts to sink. Now we know the end of this story. Thankfully the Lord reaches out and rescues him. But imagine if he kept his focus. Imagine if he'd been able to focus on Jesus the entire way. What an amazing thing he would have been able to do there. And in the same way, if we can keep our focus on Jesus, we don't need to worry about the waves or the wind, about provisions or false teaching, because if we can focus on the only thing that truly matters, then we will get to enjoy the beauty and the privilege of knowing God as our saviour. And we will be able to honour him. And my friends, I think that is even better than walking on water. 